Well, it's Christmas in July here at Stanwich. I don't know if you saw this in the news. Just last week, the planets of Venus and Jupiter aligned in the night sky for the first time in 2,000 years. Do you know what some people were calling that? The Bethlehem star. So it seems that the stars are aligned for us to read from Isaiah 9 this morning here on the 5th of July. I'm actually glad that our Isaiah series lined up this way because... So often we hear this text, this passage read around Christmas time when most of us are kind of frantic. We're just compressed for time and we've got so many activities going on. Others of us are not compressed but depressed around Christmas time and all of that darkness and family dramas and issues going on. So here in the relaxed 4th of July weekend, let's take an unhurried look at Isaiah chapter 9, to us a child is born. Hopefully we can remember some of the things that God reveals to us today, six months from now, when Christmas time does come around, and we can just look at it today without the frenetic pace of December. Those first three verses of our text, they, they have some pretty dark words in them. They define these people in the northern region of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun, living in gloom, living in darkness, living in anguish, even contempt. It doesn't sound like a very good situation. In fact, it wasn't because in that land, in the Galilee region, in the north part of Israel, it was particularly vulnerable to the constant attack of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the greatest enemy of Israel. And they would come in from the north and they would trample they would oppress, they would use violence and enslavement against God's people time and time again. The boot of oppression was on the neck of the Israelites in the northern region. This is why they were living in gloom and in anguish and in darkness. But they were God's people. So in the middle of all of that, they also hoped. And this is what Isaiah is pointing them to. Laced throughout those first three verses of gloom and darkness and anguish, hope arises. A light has shined. It even uses the word joy, that the people of God might find joy again. These people who are living under the boot of oppression of the Assyrians. So how might hope come to God's people? How might joy rise up again? How might light shine on their darkened hearts? Well, Isaiah points them towards a coming Savior, divine intervention, because the people had kept putting their hope, kept putting their faith in human means. They kept putting another human on the throne, and he would fail them in one way or another. They looked for earthly security over and over again, but they kept living under the oppression, under the boot, under the rod of the attacks of the Assyrians. So Isaiah points them for a divine, to a divine Savior. Now, it would be easy for us to look at this text this morning, as most people do, I think, most often, to look at this text and say, those people back then were living in such dark times, they needed a divine Savior. And then we could go to the New Testament and show how all of the things in Isaiah 9 point directly to Jesus Christ, and they do. We could do that today. But what we would walk away thinking is those people long ago and far away needed a Savior, and they got one. 
But remember one of our themes for this summer in Isaiah is implication. How are we implicated in this story? It's not just a story of people long ago and far away who needed a savior and got one. Here's the reality. Those people walking in darkness needed a savior. And so do we. We too are in desperate need of divine intervention. We need a savior. We've tried our human means. We don't have the trampling boot of a military army coming into Greenwich, but we do have the oppression of sin on our hearts that covers us in darkness, that keeps us from rising up again and living in freedom and in hope and in light and in joy. It's just as oppressive on our hearts as the Assyrians were on the people of Israel. So we're going to look at this idea that these people, they needed a divine savior to conquer their greatest enemy and then to govern over them with peace. We're going to look at that with implication, understanding that we need a divine savior who will conquer our greatest enemy and then govern us with his peace, govern over our lives. They needed a divine savior, and so do we. This is a very familiar verse, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's unpack that verse just a little bit. It's familiar, isn't it? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Those first two lines, it would seem Isaiah is pointing them towards yet another human savior, a child, a son. These are terms that are unequivocally meaning somebody that's human. Then it says the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's another way of saying he's going to be in charge. He's going to be in charge of everything, this child, this son. And then the next line is a bit of a surprise in the Hebrew. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Man. Doesn't say that, does it? We would expect that in the Hebrew. We would expect it to say Adam Gabor. But instead it says El Gabor. Not Mighty Man. This child, this son, this human that's going to be born, who's going to raise up and be in charge of everything. He's not just going to be a mighty man. He's going to be a mighty God. Isaiah is pointing the Israelites toward hope in a Savior who's both human and divine. Because they would need a king, they would need a Savior, they would need a warrior who's both fully human and fully divine. Because that's what they needed. They had tried their human efforts and they all had failed and disappointed. They needed somebody who was divine, who would come and rescue them, who would conquer their greatest enemy. We need that too. Are we done trying? Putting our hope and our future in human leaders? When will be our final disappointment in putting our hope and our future in human leaders? We need divine intervention. We need a Savior who's both human and God. And that person is Jesus Christ. Why? because we need him to conquer our greatest enemy. Do you know that there's an enemy of your soul? Now, here's the amazing thing. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, has Jesus conquered that enemy? 
And the answer is yes, but not yet. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But the harder thing for us to think about as Christians oftentimes is the fact that we need divine intervention. We try over and over and over again to do it on our own. We like the idea of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, of being a self-made man or woman. And maybe that's the way your career has gone, and that's great. But spiritually speaking, we're about as helpless as those people living in the land of Galilee who kept getting attacked by the Assyrians over and over and over again. Because of sin, we cannot rise up above it on our own. We need a warrior who will conquer our greatest enemy, the enemy of our souls. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 to understand how this played out for the Israelites and how it might look for us. It says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now what Isaiah shows us here is a series of images that indicate the war that was going on. There's a yoke, there's a rod, there's a staff, and there's a boot. If you were to show these images to the Israelites during this time, they would know exactly what Isaiah is talking about. The yoke that was placed on their shoulders, the yoke of enslavement from their oppressor. The rod and the staff hitting their backs with oppression and the boot of oppression on their neck. But look what it says at the end of verse 4. You, this divine intervener, this Savior, will break all of those symbols, as on the day of Midian. Now, many of you might not remember the day of Midian. It's mentioned often in the Old Testament. It's a time when Gideon was the leader of God's army, and he had 30,000 troops all lined up to go and uh, war against their enemy. And Gideon went out before them and he said, if there's anybody here who's afraid, who wants to go home, you can go home now. And he asked that a couple of times and pretty soon he was only left with 300 men. But somehow the Lord gave them power and strength and they rose up and they conquered their enemy. The Israelites loved this story because it gave glory to God who is victorious in battle using only 300 faithful people. Isaiah's reminiscing about that when he says that the rod and the staff and the yoke will all be broken as on that day. In other words, this divine intervener, God, will rise up and be more powerful than our human efforts and will conquer our greatest enemy. And at the end of verse 5 where it says, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now what's he talking about there? In the ancient world, when an enemy was conquered and driven out of the land, they often left behind things like chariots and weapons of war. And it was a tradition in the ancient world to gather up all those things that the enemy had left behind and put them in big bonfire piles and light them on fire and then have celebrations around those fires. Look, the enemy is out of our land. Let's celebrate and be glad. Can you picture the landscape of northern Israel just dotted with these bonfires of celebration when the Assyrians had gone out. Isaiah is pointing them to a time when that would be true, when the enemy would be conquered and driven out of their land and they could burn in fire all of the symbols of oppression that had been beating them down. I have a friend from long ago who spent many years as an alcoholic 
And much as he tried, he could not rise above. He couldn't get himself to stop drinking. Until one day, God intervened divinely and got him into a program, got him a sponsor, and he went to AA, and his higher power helped him, and he became sober. And a few months later, after he had been sober for some time, he was going in and out of his apartment every day, and he saw, hanging on the, the hook next to his door, his old leather jacket that he used to wear every night when he went out to the bar to go drinking. And it was a reminder for him coming in and out of the door, and every day it was actually a bit of a temptation for him. He, wanted to put, he thought he looked pretty good in that jacket. <laughs> and he remembered his days of partying and drinking, but finally he realized, you know what, that jacket doesn't define me anymore. It has no power over me. And so he took that jacket one night, he brought it out to the backyard, and he put it in the fire pit and used some lighter fluid and lit it on fire. And he celebrated that God had given him sobriety, that God had divinely intervened and helped him overcome his alcoholism. Has Jesus been your conquering Savior? Has he divinely intervened? I see some heads nodding yes. Has Jesus come in as your divine intervention and conquered the enemy of your soul? Now, the answer to this, as I said a minute ago, is complicated. We say, yes, Jesus is that Savior, but not yet. We haven't fully seen the fullness of his conquering plan, have we? Because Jesus conquered sin and death when he walked out of that tomb, when he rose from the dead, he was victorious. And he's been victorious in some of our lives as he's helped us overcome the power of sin. But there's still a lot of war weapons lying around our landscape, isn't there? We still see sin almost everywhere we look. Five minutes on the news and we see the weapons of war still being used in our time. Because that final day has not come yet when the fire of judgment burns up all that remains of the remnants of the enemy of our souls. We live in that time between when our enemy has been conquered and driven out of the land and yet we haven't yet had those bonfires of celebration. That final day, Jesus' second coming has not come. We live in the already and the not yet of Jesus, our conquering hero our divine Savior. When we realize it, when we realize that He is who He said He was, the one who can be victorious over sin and death and be our divine intervener, our divine Savior, we realize that the enemy is gone. It has no hold over our hearts anymore. So we need Him to govern. We need Him to govern our lives. Let's look in verse 7 to see how this sounded for the Israelites and how it is for us. Verse 7 says this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I have to laugh when I read this. Because I know that some of us have just an allergic reaction to the idea of increase and government in the same sentence. <laughs> so let me help explain this to you. Here it is, the 5th of July. We've just celebrated our freedom of independence from an earthly king. 
But please get this. We all are dual citizens. Did you know that? You have dual citizenship. You are a citizen of the United States of America, but you are also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And on July 4, as a citizen of the United States, you celebrate your freedom of independence from an earthly king. But every day, as Christians, we celebrate our dependence on the king of kings. We want his government to increase in our time and in our lives. You might go fight politically for the decreasing of the government of the United States. That's fine. But as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you want his government, his authority, his rule to increase. Why? Because it says the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will establish his kingdom with justice and with righteousness. Now, usually when earthly kings are in charge and their government increases, It's usually not marked by peace, justice, and righteousness, is it? As as human government increases, sometimes it's marked by the opposite of peace and injustice and unrighteousness. But when God's rule, when God's authority, when God's government increases and more and more people are submitted under his kingship, peace increases. Justice increases. Righteousness increases. We need a divine Savior who will conquer our greatest enemy and then who will govern our lives with his peace, with his justice, and with his righteousness because God's reign is legitimate and eternal and we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. So several months from now, when Christmas time comes around again and you hear these words, sung or read, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. My prayer is that we would all look to this coming child as our divine rescuer, our divine intervener, our divine savior that we all desperately need, who will conquer and has conquered the enemy of our souls. But then the further prayers that we would seek to live under his authority, that we would pray for the increase of his government, of peace and of justice and of righteousness, that he would send us as ambassadors in his kingdom for his glory, and for the benefit of his world. Amen. Let's rise for our communion hymn.